Welcome back. Today we have an awesome guest, Dr. Blisa Vranich, who is a world-renowned expert on breathing. She's well-known, been on a number of national media outlets from Anderson Cooper, CNN, Fox, Today Show, Good Morning America, etc. This is Pain Refrain. By background as a clinical psychologist, but really her last years have been fully focused on the study of breathing and really getting breathing correctly back into our life. She's a great voice that really speaks to a huge aspect of what it means when working with folks with persistent pain and really getting their breath back. So with no further ado, let's welcome Dr. Belisa Vranich. Give the listeners a little bit about your background and how you became a breathing expert. It's a kind of a funny name to have, but I became a breathing expert because I was dealing with my own sort of stress and pain. And once I did find a solution, which was changing the way I breathed, I started doing it with my own therapy patients. And they loved the breathing and they loved how it connected body and mind. So I sort of transitioned. I went over to just be teaching breathing with a little bit of psychology now, but mostly just breathing. So your background is one of a clinical psychologist, is that correct? Exactly. My degree was in child and developmental psychology. So I specialized in IQ testing and neuropsychology. Then um, I did all sorts of varied and sundry things uh, within psychology, including being one of the editors at Men's Fitness Magazine, working with all sorts of populations, prison populations and public education campaigns and you name it. So sort of everything within psychology and of course having a, a private practice as well. And then this now is the only thing I do. I definitely have specialized and stuck to this and just find it so intriguing and satisfying that I'm not doing anything else. So I am a breathing expert and I'm living it and living it and breathing it every day. Well, that is awesome. And would you mind, I mean, since this podcast really is, we're really about, you know, pain and persistent pain and chronic pain. And we have a lot of voices of people that have suffered tremendously and have come out on the other side, largely through changes of understanding. Would you mind expanding a little on your own journey if that's not too close? Not a problem at all. I was grinding my teeth, so it was jaw pain. It came about, you know, I thought rather suddenly in that I had a dull throbbing pain in my jaw. I went to the dentist and found that I'd been grinding my teeth for some time and actually been doing a really, really good job at it. I was just completely shattering my teeth and my jaw. I had to really take a step back. I didn't have any problem, structural problem with my jaw, but I was just using it as an outlet for stress, which is interesting because for us that take stress, don't think we have it or deny that we have it, it usually pops out in different places. So, you know, back pain, GI problems, migraines, teeth grinding, sleep problems. My body decided to pick grinding. I had to spend a lot of money and so many appointments over the next year fixing what I had done to myself. And now I have this very sexy night guard that I wear all the time. The pain was, was thankfully it was short, but I did have to learn how to deal with the pain and the stress and the, the diagnosis, which was a, sort of a blow to my ego and required a lot of lifestyle changes. Dr. Belisa, I really appreciate you telling us your personal story and kind of how you got there and really now transferring it into clinical practice. You know, we talk on this show quite a bit about the power of breathing, but I'll be honest with you in saying that our conversations about it 
have been relatively superficial. They usually go somewhere along the lines of, you know, we know breathing is important. We know breathing patterns are altered when folks are having chronic pain. And we know if we can encourage some some good, you know, diaphragmatic breathing and, and good rib cage expansion, that might help to, to alter the nervous system, maybe quiet down the sympathetic, increase the parasympathetic. Could you talk a bit more about some of the specifics, really talking specifically to, to people who are struggling with pain and have some of that maybe sympathetic overdrive? Could you maybe go in a little more detail into how exactly this is this is helpful? Sure. But actually, you just said something interesting, which is that we tend to have instructions for breathing that are a little bit vague. And that's one of the reasons I got into this is that just take a deep breath or, you know, keep breathing or just all the, the cliches, the, the metaphors, the songs that we have, make it sound like it's something natural. But the fact is that it's not at all. And we're doing it very badly. And we actually have know very little about the inhale, the exhale, the mechanism of it. So that was actually what I was up against as I started teaching was that a lot of people say, well, isn't it just natural? You just inhale and exhale. That's the one thing that we actually do well. The answer is no. And the practical advice that you get is often either so vague and sort of ethereal, sort of just like take a deep breath. Now, what does that really mean? How do you take a deep breath? Most of us don't really know how to do it because we really don't know what the diaphragm looks like, and we just don't know how this body works. So the taking a deep breath is a great suggestion. However, most of us don't know how to do it well. And as far as your breathing or respiration being connected to parasympathetic or your calm state of being, it's directly attached There is no way to separate the two. So there's no way to be calm and be breathing in a way that is a stress breath. And there's no way to be completely stressed out if you're breathing in a way that's telling your nervous system to calm down. So those two are intrinsically linked. And there is absolutely no doubt that if you breathe well with a breath that's calming, that your body's not going to listen. It has no choice. So I'm totally aware that this is going to be a challenging question. And, and it depends might be our inevitable answer. But could you give the listeners, so really what we have here on the podcast is a huge audience of, of healthcare practitioners that are dealing with folks in pain across a wide variety of disciplines. And I know there's interest in doing some breath work. And number one, maybe they should go to your class and we'll talk about that at the end for sure. Are there some spots where you tend to start, Dr. Belisa, that you have found over time are just almost wins for everybody? You know, areas to start or cues that you use that that really get things going in the right direction in the clinic? Absolutely. And, you know, you'll, you'll rarely hear me say it depends because it's one of the most boring answers ever. Totally. Whenever uh, you know, someone says it depends or that's, you know, there's a lot of individual differences, we automatically tune out. Yeah. And I'll tell you this is that I learned that. I learned how to answer and how to give an answer that although there may be individual differences, relates to everyone and is, is interesting. I used to do a lot of television and I was on with uh, Nancy Grace and I remember her asking me something about the diagnosis of someone who had gone and done something awful. And I said, well, I don't know because I haven't interviewed them personally, so on and so forth. So I gave the right answer, which was, I don't know this person. I haven't done a clinical interview with them. And as soon as we went to commercial, she looked at me, she pointed her finger right at me and said, don't you ever say you don't know on my television show. Don't ever say that because you are my expert. So figure it out, but don't ever let it happen again. 
So I never did. You know, first is that I, you know, was a little shocked at getting yelled at, but she was right, is that I am the expert on there and I better find something that's interesting to say that relates to everyone. So that being said, yes, there is something that everyone can do, no matter how old you are, no matter how heavy or thin or stressed out or calm you are, which is change your breathing from what I call a vertical breath to a horizontal breath. And a vertical breath is one that's very common and it's because of culture. It's because of myths. It's because of of stress. And it's a way that adults breathe that we think is the right way. And often we think it's the right way because we've seen adults when we were younger breathe this way or because when we see commercials or, or advertisements, people are breathing this way. So if you watch yourself breathe, and I'm sure you're both not vertical breathers because I'm sure that you've looked into this and you are horizontal breathers. But even if you have a little bit of vertical breath that's still left, it feels like this. You inhale and you go up. You tilt your chin up towards the ceiling and you inhale and you might even puff up your chest and you feel like you get a little bit taller. So that string that always people say, oh, you have a string on your head and it pulls upward when you breathe and you feel like you're going up towards the sky. Well, guess what? That is an anatomically incongruous breath. It's actually using muscles and parts of our body that are considered parts that are auxiliary when you're supposed to be taking a breath. You're really not using your main breathing muscle and you're not accessing the biggest part of your lungs. So you're breathing in a way that actually no other being on the planet does because it actually makes absolutely no sense to breathe up and down. So usually there's a barrage of questions now of how did we get this way and is that possible and was there any adaptive value in doing this? And the fact is that I want you to take your hands right now, you and and anybody who's listening, not if you're driving though, um, and I want you to put your hands down at the lowest part of your ribs. So sort of between your nipples and your belly button. That's where I want your hands on either side of your body. The biggest part of your lungs is right now underneath your fingers and your palms, which is kind of crazy. So the the densest part of your lungs, the most oxygen exchange happens here in the middle of your body. So that breath that you were taking before, because we're going to change it, with your shoulders was really accessing a very small part of your lungs. So think about this. It's just simple, you know, math is that if you're breathing with the smallest part of your lungs and your shoulders up and down, it means that to get the breath you need, you actually have to breathe faster. And that's exactly what we don't want. We don't want a fast breath and we don't want a breath that alerts the nervous system and tells it, hey, we need to have heart rate go up, blood pressure go up, cortisol go up because this person is in a stressed out state. And again, when we hear about stress, and I had to think about this as well, we always hear it's not the stressor, it's how we interpret the stressor. And that sounds great, but most people don't know exactly what that means. So again, because I I love breaking things down into chewable pieces, is that if you're breathing with your shoulders, your nervous system is always hearing that you're in fight and flight. And that does not mean anything as far as your environment. You could be just chilling on the beach each in Mexico with a drink, just having a great weekend on vacation. But if you're breathing with your shoulders, your body's always going to be in a slight flight or, or freeze sort of mode. 
So the the short <laughs> answer to this, the very, very long answer I have here is that you need to change your breathing so that you expand your middle Yes, your belly on the inhale and on the exhale that you actually contract your middle, narrow your body on the exhale. And a lot of people find that they like tipping forwards for the inhale and tipping back for the exhale. And again, the next question I'm going to actually know what you're going to say is, wait, I have to pop my belly out. I have to (laughs) let my belly go. No way. I've been sucking in my gut for 10, 20, 30 years. Why would I ever want to do that? And the fact is that if you inhale and expand and exhale and squeeze and contract on a horizontal plane, your core is going to get stronger. So that vertical breathing is actually making for a weak core, whereas this horizontal breath, because you have to give it a little squeeze on the exhale, it's going to actually make your abs and your core stronger. So there we go. Well, that was an excellent summary. And uh, (laughs) I I feel so much better right now as I've been following along with you on that. So you know what I find so fascinating? And and you uh, mentioned this in your book, Breathe, which is, by the way, outstanding. Belisa, really, really enjoyed it. And yeah, we'll be recommending that at the end of the show for sure. But, you know, one of the things that really resonated early on was you use the term a fuzzy brain. As we begin to see... You know, all of the changes that we're seeing now in neuroscience that's showing that a lot of persistent problems essentially are really where we get smudging and lack of resolution in our brain. I'm talking specifically to chronic persistent pain where parts of our body, really it's a lack of feeling in there and we get a lack of resolution in our sensory cortex. It resonated with me because I think this breath work is very much the same way. You mentioned we've atrophied our ability to breathe correctly because we haven't exercised those neurons and subsequently those muscle tissues associated with them. Are you looking at it from that perspective as well? Absolutely. I'm looking at it specifically from an anatomical sort of muscular point of view, which is that most people, when they think breathing, they have a picture of two little lungs, these two little odd-shaped, spongy things. And the fact is that your lungs really don't do very much. It's really, you know, the king of all muscles, your diaphragm that does all this amazing work. Then, of course, you have intercostals, which are between every rib and all your abs and your core muscles and your pelvic floor. So what happens, and you know this, is that when you're in a lot of pain, your focus as far as your body goes to where you're feeling that pain. So part of the thing breathing does is all of a sudden the attention disperses and you actually start having sensation in all different parts of your body so that the pain actually doesn't feel as bad. But when you're in pain, you tend to take very short breaths and try not to move. And that's exactly what makes the pain worse. We talk so much about that idea of movement. And you know, it's funny, we had um, Peter O'Sullivan on just recently who really works with folks who have been experiencing a lot of pain. And one thing he talks a lot about is just that bracing and that unwillingness to breathe and expand and the restriction of movement. Are you working with a lot of patients who are in pain and using breath to get them out of that? And are, are you correlating that with movement? Is, is that a big part of what you're doing? Absolutely. So when I'm getting people to breathe horizontally, your whole body moves a lot more. Your hips move, your middle moves, your digestive system gets, you know, peristalsis is supported. Even your heart is supported by the movement of your diaphragm. Your shoulders should 
shouldn't move unless you're taking a humongous breath, but in general, they shouldn't move. So the amount of movement that's happening in your body when you take a perfect breath, when you take a whole body breath is really mind-blowing. And you just mentioned something interesting, which is bracing. And I, I do break it down into one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that people change their breathing from this beautiful horizontal breath that we all do till about age five three things happen. We either start bracing because of fear or anxiety. Life starts getting complicated and scary. So you start bracing because bracing in general makes you feel ready to run or to strike. You can also guard if you have pain or if you've had pain before, you can end up guarding that part of your body. You'll see people who have, who are rib grippers, who actually the middle of their body is sort of pull and you would have the terminology obviously better than I do is that the part of the body where they've felt pain is sort of pulled away from the rest of them or they keep their hands in front of them because they've had pain or they don't have a lot of thoracic movement because they have back pain so the guarding a place where you have pain or have had pain almost always makes it worse and makes it last longer. And then, of course, the third one is, I you know, haven't found a one-word answer for it, but it has to do with myth, culture, and vanity, and that is sucking it in. So if you think about it, all of us are doing most of those three things at some point, if not all three of them at the same time, which is bracing, guarding, and sucking it in. And the sucking it in comes from wanting to look thinner. It also comes from the myth, this idea we think that doing this constant isometric of pulling in your gut is going to make it stronger. And that couldn't be farther from true. Well, that's interesting as you go there, because that theme continues throughout this podcast. You mentioned that, you know, you are really focused on that the power for change is that individual sitting in front of you. And to really break down the, these myths that have continually been propagated by healthcare experts, actually. Exactly. Healthcare experts will tell you, in general, when they tell you take a deep breath or you need to use your diaphragm, no one knows where to go from there. You wouldn't believe how many people come in and they say, well, I need to breathe into my diaphragm. Well, first of all, your diaphragm is a skirt stake, is a flat, relatively flat, thin sort of dome-shaped muscle where it's you can't breathe into it. There's no into it. And you have to first understand the diaphragm before you can do anything, which is feels like it should be something you learned in fifth grade, but we didn't learn it well. I had to also go back and look at drawings and think, why don't I understand this muscle? It's, it's so big and it's in the middle of your body, but most of us just think about this little red line that crosses the body and we don't really understand that it's, it's this really large sort of pizza frisbee-like muscle that has a lot of up to five inches in movement up and down your body and whose primary, not its sole job, but its primary job is to help the rib cage expand on the inhale right where you had your hands before. We're always wondering about measuring progress and kind of reassessing and you know seeing if we're going in the right direction. Do you have a way that, that you actually objectively measure someone so you know they have a baseline? What do you do with that? Oh, yes. And that is 
is really what I wanted to do this. It was really my mission in setting up this method is that we have a baseline because too often you think, breathe, you can't see your lungs, you can't feel your diaphragm, you can't see air, which means that none of us are either going to pay attention to it or really know if we're doing better because you can't see or feel any of those things. However, they're terrifically important. And the problem is if you go into a pulmonary clinic at a hospital is they bring out the spirometer, you puff into this gadget, right, which is actually kind of uncomfortable. If it's over 80, they say, hey, you're within normal limits. Don't worry about it. But guess what? When it comes to breathing, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be within normal limits, especially when within normal limits is pretty sick. I want to be optimal, if not have a lung age that's actually way better than my chronological age. So yes, I did set up a system where you get a, what's called a BIC. It's called a breathing IQ. And it combines two things, which is your style of breathing that we've already talked about, horizontal and vertical. And it looks at how much your diaphragm moves given the measurement of your ribs around the very bottom of your ribs where your diaphragm attaches. And that gives you a grade. You can actually come in or read the book or whatever and say, I don't think my breathing is good, but I don't know. I just have this gut feeling. And then you actually give yourself a grade. You go through this little process and see, oh my gosh, I'm a D. I'm right. My breathing was really bad. Or, oh my gosh, I'm a B. I can get better. I'd like to be an A. So that was really key in my mission to developing this method is to be able to have a system where you can measure how good your breathing is. Awesome to hear. And and in your book, you're very good about providing, again, clear strategies that not only allow you to measure, but then here are some baseline exercise programs that you can do. And the other thing I'd like you to talk about is, again, given what we're seeing in society of our seated postures and our desk work. You you have a nice section in there on posture and breathing. And would you mind elaborating on that? Sure, no problem. With posture, I talk about posture within what I know. And then, of course, I refer to folks who are professionals like you because what I know is is very 101, but I can get through that. Posture affects your breathing up to 30%. So if you have uh, shoulders that are internally rotated, if you're a rib gripper, if your pelvis, you sit with your pelvis sort of underneath you, which is pretty much our standard sitting posture, you're not going to be breathing well. In the same breath, if you have sort of what's called a, Leon Chaitau talks a lot about uh, scissors open or cracked open where your ribs are forward and your back is really tense. It's sort of a a bravado pose. You're also not going to be getting a good breath. Often people who, who stand in that way, that bravado pose with their chest very open, tend to suck in their guts. So they're not getting a good breath either. Posture is really, really important when you're thinking about breathing. So the three things I talk about when I talk about posture is the position of your neck. So to make sure that you're not in forward head posture, you know, all day long, which a lot of us are, that your shoulders are in a good place as well, and that your your hips and are in a good posture, and that you have flexibility in your thoracic cavity. So I do a lot of spinal twists. Um, gently with people that are learning how to do them, but spinal twists Mm -hmm. are terrifically important. And obviously getting up out of your seat and stretching and really making sure that your neck, your chin is tucked back into your body and not leaning onto your computer as you try to finish whatever you're doing. Because that's a very, very standard pose. Forward head posture is something I talk about a lot 
fairly simple to readjust yourself, even if it's for a minute or two and then go back into it because it's hard not to be there, but at least know what straight feels like. At least try to have your ears over your shoulders and, and bring your head back over your body. I really love that point that you made there about, you know, making sure that a person has the ability right through posture. I think sometimes we say, hey, take a, take a good breath. And, and, and if someone has significant, you know, rib cage mobility problems and has very aberrant posture, well, you're, you're asking them to do something that they are not set up for success with. Exactly. And they haven't even had the experience to see what it feels like. And that's, you know, where my, my specialization in learning comes in, which is that I look at someone and say, what don't you know how to do and where are you getting stuck? So for instance, I'll give you an example. I had a woman come in to see me the other day and she was actually a Pilates instructor. So her exhale, because Pilates focuses a lot on exhale, was perfect. It was a beautiful exhale. It was a horizontal exhale where her whole body narrowed. She had no clue how to inhale. It was really, really interesting that, I mean, she would take little sips to inhale using her shoulders, but from an anatomy perspective, she didn't know how to actually get her body to expand on the inhale because she had been in an exhale for so long and her inhales, she would take them, these little bird sips with her shoulders. So actually teaching her to do the opposite of exhale was what we had to do. And that was just really wild to see her face and her brain working and trying to, you know, wrap herself around this concept of expanding on the inhale. And as you obviously know, is that part of what was really hard is that if you've been gripping your middle for years, maybe even decades, is that your diaphragm is not going to want to move immediately. It really isn't because it's been sort of squished up for so long that when you're letting it expand your ribs open, it's not going to want to. It's going to say, what are you doing? I'm used to being sort of all crushed into your thoracic cavity being pulled and mauled by your your gut sucking so getting that diaphragm unlocked and moving again is can be can be tough but it's absolutely possible with everyone belisa i'd like to ask one more question regarding the posture you know you mentioned that forward head posture and we tend to see both uh, injury and through just chronic ergonomic positions the c3 4 5 region of the neck how that often is quite irritable. And at the same time, we now see these people uh, with this very uh, vertical breathing pattern. And do you look at it from a, a innervation perspective of the diaphragm? Do you, is that part of your thought process when it comes to forward head posture and correction? That's definitely part of it because we know the nerves that go through the cervical spine go to the diaphragm. So I definitely bring that into the conversation. But more than anything, it's about taking the, you usually have someone who has forward head posture. They might also be mouth breathers. There's so many other complications that come with mouth breathing and forward head posture as well. So yes, I do talk about the nerves going through there um, and how they affect the diaphragm. I tend to stick to trying to get them to feel what straight feels like from a behavioral point of view. So, so many people understand things consciously and intellectually, but they need to feel what straight feels like. And I'm sure you get this all the time where you have someone, you say, this is what straight feels like. And they say, I feel like I'm leaning back mm-hmm. because their proprioception has actually changed to the point that they can't even see when they're standing up straight. So, for instance, 
forward head posture for me happens with a lot of the folks I see, not only because of technology or because they're in the car, but I look at two things that aren't typical, which is their sport, what they do as a sport or for exercise. And I also look at their personality. So if you have someone who's always late and always in a rush, they are definitely going to have forward head posture because they've gotten this idea that if they get their chin and face there faster, somehow that will help them be on time. So I call it a disease of too fast, just like acid refluxes. Acid refluxes because we're eating too fast, we're barely swallowing, we're eating faster than we ever have before in the history of man. There's actually one study that says that we're actually walking. When we do walk, which isn't often enough, uh, we're walking faster than we ever have before. So that being in a rush is is pulling the chin forwards when it would do much better for you if you actually leaned your head back, opened up your shoulders, and actually let your feet get you to where you were going the way we were built. I love that analogy, the behavioral aspects and being tuned in to that perspective. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Lisa, I'm checking out your website here. This is so cool. You've really taken a a real asymmetry and corrected it because we've heard all along, I mean, in graduate school and post-grad courses, oh, breathing is so important. I've probably heard that like a thousand times, (laughs) yet never have we actually dedicated the time and intensity to evaluating and actually treating breath. So I just think it's so cool that you have, you know, you've really stepped up and actually organized classes to do this well. And I'm looking at your website. I, I love the kettlebell on the belly here. I'm not even sure if it's there for a proprioceptive cue or what, but that, that is, can you talk a little bit about what you guys do in these classes and maybe where some upcoming ones are, are going to be at so our listeners can track you a bit? Sure, I will. But I'll let you know about that picture with the kettlebell, which is that if you treat breathing and breathing muscles as something you have to exercise, just like you do your your glutes or your, you know, I always laugh and say, everybody's looking at their triceps and thinking about not wanting bat wings. Well, what are you doing for your breathing muscles? They're so much more important than, you know, some of the other little muscles that you're all obsessed about. You know, why don't we start treating our breathing by looking at the muscles? So that's why I use the kettlebells and I have people work in a gym because it's not about as much as I love yoga and and spirit moving through you and the universe and chakras, and I love that sort of stuff, there's a time and a place for it. If you're going to talk to people about breathing, you need to talk to them about you know what their diaphragm is doing and when. And can they actually use a five-pound weight, a 10-pound weight? How many reps are they doing? You have to treat it like any other muscle in the body, which is that if you're not going to use it, it's going to uh, lose its tone, it's going to get tight, and it's going to atrophy, which is what has happened with our breathing muscles. So that's why there's a picture of the kettlebell. I don't usually use kettlebells in my regular classes. When I work with military law enforcement and and sort of my extreme athletes, we will use kettlebells just because they can handle it and, and they actually want that sort of pain. So that's what that picture is about. <laughs> I do have classes coming up, teacher trainings that are coming up. The next one is in January in Los Angeles. And, you know, I don't know where you live, but usually January in Los Angeles is kind of nice. So I decided to do one uh, the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th in January. It's a short intensive, intensive accreditation because I made it for someone like me, which is that I don't like a lot of hand-holding and singing and long lunches. If I go take a class, I want it intense as possible. I want to go in, learn everything I have to, be given a lot of homework, 
and leave. So this is a 20-hour over three-day situation. There are continuing credits that are attached to it of all sorts. And usually I have a lot of uh, physical therapists, chiropractors, life coaches, trainers, massage therapists, all sorts of folks. The groups tend to be really, really just awesome and intense. Um, the last one we had was in New York, and the group was actually just fantastic. They really bonded. They had so much information from each of their perspective areas of expertise. It was a blast. You learn a lot. By the end of class, you're able to do an assessment on someone. You can give them a grade. You can see how they're breathing, and you know how to fix it. And you can either become a breathing you know, teacher or coach, or you can just integrate it into your own practice, which a lot of people really like. Beautiful. Do you mind talking just for a second about your book and maybe giving the the listeners um, some resources to follow you as far as social media and stuff like that? Sure, absolutely. So Breathe is the name of the book because I obviously do not have a degree in marketing. I keep it all very simple. (laughs) Um, The Simple Revolutionary 14-Day Program to Improve Your Mental and Physical Health. That's the second part of the sentence. The website is The Breathing Class because, again, I'm a simple animal. For Twitter and Instagram, it's Dr. Belisa, D-R-B-E-L-I-S-A. I do Facebook Lives pretty frequently, and I answer all kinds of questions. So if people ask me questions, I may not be able to answer them the same day, but I love getting them. You know, would answer any questions and and hope to have people come to the January workshop where we'll be having a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This is so cool because, again, it's something that comes up a lot. And I actually have a resource that people can reach out to you, go to your classes, get your book. And when they see this is an area that needs, you know, some, some real good earnest time spent, thank you so much for providing great resources to solve the problem. It was an honor and a privilege to be on your podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Tim. Wow. What a useful episode with Dr. Belisa. You know, we, we've talked time and time again about breathing and, and so great to have her as a resource. Don't hesitate to reach out to her. You know, we've chatted and she really is very, very open to, to receiving comments and questions. So find her on social media and use that website as a real resource. And that way we can take on this issue that, like she said, is so widespread. And we all know as clinicians that breathing issues and pain go hand in hand. And if we can use some of these real fundamental resources and maybe even get to one of those live courses, I think we can change the outcomes with our patients. So really, really fun conversation. Really appreciate her taking the time. Folks, thanks for the support. Thanks for following us. As always, thank you, ISPI, for continuing to support Tim and I as we bring on great speakers and challenging topics and move things forward. So ISPinstitute.com, at EIM team, evidenceinmotion.com on the blog. And as always, reviews on iTunes are so appreciated. Folks, have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next time on the next episode of Pain Reframed. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.